and we're live. Welcome to another episode of Professor and the Idiot. I'm Nick Wolfinger. I'm Amy Newberg. I'm the idiot most of the time. Maybe today I'm not. Maybe maybe today you're the idiot, Nick, because we're talking. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because we're talking to a dancer, and Nick has admitted he, that he knows quote fuck all about dance. Yes. So <laughs> now's his chance to find out fuck all. Yes, <laughs> and I expect over the in the course of the next five to six hundred episodes, we can shed substantial light on who the idiot is and what entails. Right. Okay. Although I'm definitely not the professor, so just sort of by process of elimination, I'll tend to be the idiot. Okay. All right. Anyway, not to mention today's guest, who is my friend Claudine Naganuma. Um, I've known Claudine for, oh my gosh, decades. I may have known Claudine from way back in the days when we were both at Mills, um, because I've been associated both with the new music world and the dance world, and Claudine is also associated with both those things. And over the years, I have watched her uh, put together her dance company, Dinaga Dance, and I've worked with her as a composer and um, really admired the work that she has done. Uh, she is also she works with young women and also with people with Parkinson's disease, which turns out to be um, kind of an amazing process that uh, has led her in some interesting directions. So we're going to talk about all that and welcome Claudine. Hi, thanks for having me, you guys. Sure. We're happy to have you. <laughs> Lovely. So what's it like right now to be a dancer during this COVID time when dance is such a physical togethery kind of thing and you can't do that? Yeah, it takes a lot of discipline to keep... Uh, keep going because um, you have to carve out your own time and your own space to keep practicing your craft, which is, it's kind of sucky that we're um, all isolated in this way. Um, but thankfully we have technology to let us zoom classes together. So we're all collectively clasping hold of the countertops and the bathroom door jams and trying to take class together still. Um, so, so one of the things that it did open up actually is that I get a chance to take class with people um, all over the country and the world, which is kind of an unusual thing. So we're just mm. trying to make do, uh, but we are waiting for the moment where we can breathe and sweat together. And hopefully that will happen soon. Is Dinaga, how, how is your dance company staying cohesive at this time? Well, so Dinaga doesn't just have a performing company. We also run community programs. So I am still teaching um, dance for Parkinson's classes every Thursday. And um, I'm also offering activities for middle school and high school aged uh, youth in East Oakland. And I still run Dance Space, which is a little dance studio in the Rockridge area. And it, you know, the nutcracker must, must persist. So we are uh, working a virtual version this year. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, can we go back to your humble beginnings and and find out about how you ended up becoming a dancer? What was your path to becoming a dancer and specifically a choreographer? How like it seems to me that sort of like in the music world, there are musicians who just really like to play other people's music, and then those who go, wait, I want to create this stuff, and they become composers. And it seems like the dance world is sort of analogous. Some dancers become choreographers. So what was your path to that? Um, so very young, I actually started off with um, learning classical Chinese dance and acrobatics and took piano lessons when I was really little and pretty much grew up performing um, Chinese uh, classical and folk dance in San Francisco Chinatown. So I grew up in San Francisco, but oddly enough, I also went to a bilingual Spanish uh, elementary school. So um, at that time they were busing kids around 
So I kind of had an eclectic upbringing and actually grew up as a uh, like a a nanny person for um, a Jewish family, which is where I became a camp counselor. Um, so I had a lot of different um, exposure to different cultures growing up. And for dance too, um, I studied jazz and then I studied modern and ballet and buto. Um, I had some um, gong fu in there. And so I think that what led me more towards becoming a choreographer was that I had all these paints to mix and I needed to kind of fuse some of these styles together. And so I think that's why I started creating movement vocabulary and creating dances. But I still, I still uh, really kind of adhere to the notion of you know, practicing technique. So um, even though I primarily uh, focus on ballet as a way to keep my technique going, you can't always see it necessarily in my work because I use it as just more of a technique, a uh, way to practice technique. But yeah, that wow. started moving. Forward. Okay, you just gave me like a little eureka moment. Like, you know, I often wonder what causes one artist to kind of follow the rules in a traditional way and another to get wacko and, and become more of a creative person. And it never really occurred to me that one of the reasons that I became a composer is because my story is similar and that I had a lot of exposure to different kinds of music, dance, different kinds of arts, a whole sort of onslaught of, you know, everything from classical to pop. And I guess when I was studying opera, I went, wait, why is this just like this and doesn't incorporate some of these other things that are so fun? And then I just decided, well, I'm going to incorporate them and do them my own way. So, wow. What you do I, so awesomely. Oh, thank you. I mean, I always knew that I was doing this mix of things, but it didn't really occur to me that, that it was that mix of things that compelled me to be an avant-garde person. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, as the social scientists, you're sort of make you just made a causal argument, right? It's about a mix of things. It's influences growing up that compelled you to do the art you do. And my thought is maybe it's a more iterative process, right? You're pointed in the direction by your influences, but that also leads you to try a bunch of different things. Does it make you more, did it lead you both of you, especially to the forms of art you took up or just to experiment with different forms? Yeah, that's a good question. Was that a, was yeah. that a question? No, I understand. I mean, does what yeah. comes first, the open-mindedness or right. the onslaught of cultures? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I would add influences on human behavior are vast. They're our family, they're, they're our friends, they're our genes, there are so many different things. I would probably say that the environment probably comes first because an artist needs to be nurtured and feel safe to take risks. Um, if, you're, if we're in living in a situation where we're dealing with survival, it, it is very challenging, I think. Um, well, I mean, the other argument then is that, you know, if you are living in survival, then you must become an innovative thinker, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just I, argued with myself. Yeah. yeah no, interesting <laughs> question. I, mean, I did. This gets uh, into the whole question of yeah. whether being an artist is some kind of privilege, you know, that we can we can do it because we feel safe doing it because we had a safe environment yeah. you know. and you had food you had food and we had food yeah although the point about the privilege i made me think of uh, an experience i had at the beginning of grad school at ucla in 1990 where i did some field work down in downtown la uh where there are a lot of homeless folks and one of the things I picked up is they have to master so many skills and know about so many bureaucracies and operate under so many constraints. There's a lot of, a ton of innovation and, you know, and people are innovating and adapting and, uh, you know, in ways that I hadn't, you know, wouldn't have thought of before I saw it. Mm. So my point is that, you know, you're, 
I guess my trying to make a broader point is that, you know, you innovate with the, with what you have. Yeah. I, I like I observe having been in the Bay area for many kind of waves of, of wealth and poverty <laughs> that the worse things get financially for artists, the more creative they become because they're looking for new ways to produce. I mean, they're so passionate about getting their work out no matter what, that they'll find, they'll just create new venues out of nothing. And they'll take, you know, classical musicians will take their stuff into the clubs because the symphonies are drying up and people will go onto the streets and do things. You know, it's like, I think we become more innovative during these times. What What do you think of that, Claudine? I, w I was going to add one example, uh, uh, a news story several years ago about the paintings that were quite good of a prisoner in solitary confinement at Pelican Bay who paint who did his paintings with the colors on M and M's. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And he, it was good, right? So he was an artist, and so he worked with what he had. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and if you go to downtown Oakland, um, there's like fantastic street art going on right now in, in response to a lot of the businesses being boarded up and Black Lives Matter. Right. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me a little bit about about using, um, using your one's experiences and the more poignant those experiences are. Um, the more possibility. So like if they are um, traumatic experiences, somehow using art to transform those experiences and share them to make the world a better place so that people have a better understanding of those traumas. I think that that's a, another, another place that artists can pull from. Yeah. And that's, a, that's another big question about how we do that well and how we do it in a way that has the right balance of personal and universal so that it's not just oh poor me i'm expressing myself but it's something that everybody can relate to yeah yeah as you amy as you and i have discussed the internet means there there is a surfeit of uh people expressing themselves at this moment right um well let's get back to your what you're doing, Claudine. Um, so you have this dance company mm -hmm. and how, how did that come about? And especially you have an interesting approach that I've never seen before. Um, you incorporate quite young kids into your dance company and they seem to have sort of the skill and discipline to do what it takes to show up and rehearse and perform. And um, they seem quite mature for kids at such young age. So how does all that work and how did that start? What ages are we talking about? Well, I I think the, maybe the youngest I took in was seven who performed. Okay. Uh, she just graduated from college. Wow. I know. But, uh, well, I'm, I'm really lucky to be at Dance Space where I have uh, been able to meet a lot of kids that came through the school. Um, so there's usually kids who are just, you know, naturally musical, creative, have, um, you know, really fantastic imaginations. And it was like they've done it before. They fit right in to um, uh, they're a ham. There are natural hams. Um, and they're usually the ones where adults feel like they can't control their kid <laughs> because the kid is just so creative and um, can self-direct. And I really love to foster that energy in little ones. Um, I kind of grew up in a, in a more strict household where it was like, um, I don't want to say how old I am, but, <laughs> but, you know, in the, in the old days, kids were to be seen and not heard, you know, you really just like mouth off. So in some cultures is that's still the, that's still the case. Right. So, um, I think it's a little bit different now because I think parents, um, parent differently now and engage their children in decision-making, which is, is, you know, yeah. how do you find the right balance? Um, yeah. But uh, what I started to realize was that I wanted kids to be front and center and very often made them the decision maker. So we would do, for example, an improvisatory movement. The kid would be downstage because they're shorter. And then we would take 
we would say, let's do it until the, the youngest, shortest human on stage says it's time. And then we move into the next section. And I just love that. I just love that everybody is um, being led by the child. And it's metaphor for, of course, you know, when they when they are, are going to lead, they are going to be leading. So it, they might as well start practicing now. Do all the girls um, eventually become dancers? I mean, is that, is, do they generally keep dancing after they've worked with your company? Um, the batch of kids that I start, had seven, nine, 11, yeah, they're, they're still dancing. They are, which is amazing. And then there's- Is it only girls? Mostly girls, yeah, who came in, in the ballet school um, and then danced with me, study, you know, um, I try to provide these workshops where they can um, practice like flying, aerial dance or buto dance. And we do collaging and all of these different things. And then they, many of them have actually gone on to dance or have gone into the medical field because a lot of them have grown up, you know, dancing with people with Parkinson's. That's kind of exciting to see. Yeah. One wow. Towards neurology, and one moves towards occupational therapy, and another became a doctor as well. Yeah. Kind of. That so, that's better than I. My first thought was, oh God, they're getting hurt, and that's why they're going into the medical field. <laughs> so I say, I say this as someone with much experience of athletic injuries. Go on. Oh, well, how, so how did you begin to incorporate dance for Parkinson's? So the Mark Morris Dance Group was coming out here consistently to Cal Performances to, to do a season, um, whether it was like a repertory season or a, um, a nutcracker, a hard nut. Um, and they came out here almost every year. Um, and I had um, done a little stint for several years, I've had a love affair of, uh, with New York. And so had taken several intensives with the Mark Morris Dance Group. And every time they would come back, I would ask uh, teachers to teach at Dance Space to either offer master classes in ballet, modern, um, partnering. And the program director, David Leventhal, who is an amazing angel bodhisattva, um, is one of the founding teachers of dance for Parkinson's. And he kept asking if he could teach it at dance space. Well, I denied his request for a couple of years until our friend Herb Hines had um, come out and told me about his diagnosis, in which case he, uh, we started partnering together to offer these classes. And then eventually um, the 501c3 Pediactive uh, was created, Herb and a group of other core members. And then uh, we've been offering dance for PD classes since 2007. PD being Parkinson's disease. Yeah. Um, what can you, what's great about dance for Parkinson's? I mean, what did you observe in it that made you interested in, in taking it on more seriously? Um, well, first of all, the students were really lovely. So, and, and most are, are um, a little older. Um, so, you know, what a delight. Uh, combining the kids with the elders. So one kid actually said, I want to get in your company. Do I need to bring my own grandma? <laughs> I said, sure, bring your grandma. Um, so that intergenerational component is great. But um, with the dancers with Parkinson's, so it's a neurological disorder. There's no cure for it yet. And um, it's idiopathic. We don't know... Um, exactly how it started although there's more clues and it's a it's a movement disorder so it manifests in um, rigidity and um, sometimes but not always with the tremor and we found that the the tools that dancers use to execute and um, remember movement 
work for people with Parkinson's. So musicality, using music to move through something or using imagery to to move through something. Um, so for example, if we begin and say, please turn to your right, there might be some fastination and not a, not the um, not able to turn, but if you're able to engage in some musicality and say follow the butterfly across the moon, it's so whooping around. All of a sudden, you see everybody turning. What's fastination? Um, fascination is like when you're trying to step forward, but then you're kind of stuck, and there's sort of like this jostling back and forth. Um, so very often you can use a line or a laser or kick a bag, some kind of external cue to move your foot, but the internal cues aren't working. Okay. Um, so for dancers, we are very often trying to coerce our muscles to do things that we don't necessarily want to do at a certain time in the music or a certain movement within a given time. Um, and so we can use those rhythms and images. I think both externally as well as internally, we can create those the art, uh, those cues. It's interesting. I'm I'm I've been a musician for decades, and I still don't understand what this is. But I can be in a terrible mood. I have to clean my house, and I'm just like, oh my god, I can't even stand up. I don't have to clean my house. I put on some music. And suddenly I'm zipping around the house, cleaning my house. Yeah. Which seems to me that's very similar to what happens to the people with Parkinson's. It's, it plays on some kind of energy system that, that enables them to do things they couldn't do a moment before. Does, does anyone understand what's going on there? I think Oliver Sacks does. He has a book called Musicophilia. Right. Yep. <laughs> Which I've read. I, I, yeah, so I should be able to answer my own question. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, I've actually seen this in action. It's dramatic, you know. I mean, Parkinson's is sort of the, the quintessential I can't move disease. And then music comes on, and they're inspired by both the music and the other people around them moving. And suddenly there they are moving. Yeah, that's the cool thing, right? So having a debilitating disease might make one want to become isolated out of shame. But dance is like all about ensemble. So that's another cool thing about dance that combats Parkinson's. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So in general, do you think your work has a social message um you know it's interesting because I think um you know as an artist I'm always working out my own issues through the creation of art and for me a lot of my issues are around identity so I like I said I grew up in San Francisco my mom is Chinese she was born in Hong Kong and she actually went through the Angel Island immigration station as a result of the Asian Exclusion Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, sorry. And then my dad is Japanese and um, my grandmother was born in Hawaii. My dad was, my grandpa was in Japan and my dad was born in San Francisco. And he um, and that side of the family was interned at the um, Gila River Reservation during World War II. So it's interesting because I think that, you know, we didn't talk much about it growing up, but I feel like it really has impacted my identity and, and feeling um, safe and also not seeing um, a reflection of my experience in mainstream media or, you know, when I first started in the dance world, um, I was lucky enough to, to direct Asian American dance performances. And a lot of my work was curating other choreographers, creating work. And that was the Asian American diaspora, right? Filipino, Thai, Hmong, Chinese, fourth through first generation, Filipino, you know, like then you have traditional and then you have contemporary um, work. And so identity I'm not exactly sure how I got there, except that I was, I think, uh, I think that um, I'm always working out my own issues. So in terms of political 
and and um, cultural work, um, it's important that the people that I that I work with, like the dancers with Parkinson's, feel empowered that they don't have to hide away just because they don't see their reflection. Same thing with the children. Um, same thing with the girls that I work with in East Oakland. Um, in many ways, because of the systems of oppression in the United States, I think that many of us, you know, so there will we'll say something like supremacy or like white supremacy, right? Then the other half of that system is a whole group of people who feel we're unworthy, right? So we take on just as much the inferiority complex. So you have a superiority and an inferiority. So you have this, this, what's, this is what makes up the system. So a lot of my work is self-care as political resistance. I mean, being able to have, have one's story and spectrum of stories be revealed is, is kind of the first step of having humans be able to see each other as humans is to know, oh, these are our relationships to our family, just like I have a relationship to my family. This is, these are my concerns raising my child or, or taking care of my mom. These are universal things that, that um, bring us all together. So in that way, I feel like community work, community activism is about, for me, about human rights. You, you said something interesting about um, mm. supremacy mm -hmm. that got me thinking, if, if there is now so much attention to this term white supremacy or white privilege, it almost, like on the one hand, okay, you know, we're super aware about white privilege. And on the other hand, it almost makes everybody else, it assigns lack of privilege to everybody else. With, with the danger of dividing us further. But it's always, does that does that make sense what I'm saying? It does, however, it's always been that way. It's just nobody's ever really noticed. Hmm. Well, I would argue there's times it's been more and less salient in America. I mean, now is a moment of high salience, but so too was 1964, 1965. Yeah. Right. But it never went away. At no, that's color. That color are dealing with it all the time so it's just um yeah do you think we're moving in a positive direction oh it seems very very scary right now i think i i have hope um but it seems like there might be some dark days ahead uh, mm -hmm. but i do feel like um in the end that's why that self-care thing is so important for each person um is we can't combat hate with hate. We can't, you know, it's like we have to, we have to stay to that kindness, compassion yeah. and empathy and understanding in order to get through. Yeah. And, and then I had another question about the whole sort of Asian American experience and all the different nationalities that that, that encompasses. Does that feel right to you that all of those things. I mean, it's great that you can be Thai, Pacific Island, Japanese, Chinese, Hmong, et cetera, and find a place that gives you freedom of expression. So I think ultimately that's the most important thing. But but then I wondered within that, do people feel like, well, we're not all the same. What's this about? You know? Well, it's totally true. Um, you know, the um, do you know about the Cultural Data Project? So the Cultural Data Project is um, basically asking a lot of nonprofit organizations to catalog their demographics so that they can um, be able to make these reports about who's being served, right? So a lot of times you'll ask, they'll, they're, there are questions, not just the California Data Project, I don't wanna just be down on them because I think it's really a collection of data, right? Um, but all of these, miscellaneous labels do become very cumbersome and we get it's just like it's just um the categorization and i think that that's just the way the human mind is you know assimilation and accommodation where does this information fit um but you know i don't think it's enough i think i think that uh, you know, it's just like Native American and you have all these different tribes, right? I think that people should have and do have um, 
cultural practices that need to be honored just in everyone, you know, not everyone should be homogenized, but I don't think it has to be so complex as everybody, like funding being dependent upon, it's too bad that, that, that the demographics are required in the way that it is. Uh, I, I think this is the first year the Arts Council ended up um, saying that it wasn't required. Because there was too much preference for minorities going on? No, I mean, I think it, I think they realized how tedious it was for the nonprofit organizations, especially a small nonprofit organization. There's a lot of bookkeeping. I think the nonprofit, the nonprofit system is flawed. The corporation, nonprofit corporations system is flawed. That, that's why Dinaga actually I have a hybrid organization. So I work with the school. So that's a, that's the other thing is just like building different relationships and partnerships with community organizations. So like a PD Active, like I mentioned earlier, Dance Space is a corporate a corporation school. I work with Dancers Group, which is my fiscal sponsor. I do think that money should go towards um, stories that haven't been heard, which are mostly folks of color who have been oppressed. And, you know, I mean, I, I sat on this panel once for the San Francisco Arts Commission and I was like, you know, I, I understand that it seemed, you know, that it might be challenging to think about it, but if there was an actual law in the United States against a group of people, you can bet that their story has not been told. Mm-hmm. So in a cultural equity type of grant situation, it really should go to folks who want to tell those cultural stories. Yeah, well, yeah, it's an in- it's interesting. The music world, we look at this too, you know. Yeah. Um, it always appears to me like there's preference in the granting world for someone who hasn't had their story told, who comes at, at it from an interesting cultural perspective, um, whether it's, you know, LGBT stories or or people of color, and you can you can look at that very cynically um, and think, well, what if we just closed our eyes and gave the money to the people who had the most talent? But on the other hand, that's not what creates an interesting world. And I I believe fully in giving everybody the opportunity um, to tell their stories. And so I don't have any trouble with this myself, even though it might affect me personally. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I also think that it's still not equitable. We live in a bubble in the Bay Area. So it seems like maybe, you know, that's the way things are going. But if you think about it, I mean, you know, ballet started in 1581. There are still primarily um, white male heads of ballet companies, right? So if we look at the choreographer lists, um, when did Ailey and, and you know when, when did Pearl Primus come and when did Black dance in America come? When will Asian American dance come? Where are the Asians, Asian Americans, people who are actually born in the United States? That work is really different from if you grew up in a majority culture and you are creating work, right? Which kind of you mean made, majority culture meaning white. White American dancers, or do you mean Asian dancers in Asia? Majority culture um, here in the United States. So, yeah, no, good point. Many, many things that seem like they've been, quote, dealt with. It's interesting, we had a similar conversation with um, Amanda Chaudhry recently about um, uh, female acceptance in the tech world mm-hmm. and and um, transgender acceptance and I, like I always forget that the Bay Area is such an unusual place. Um, in the electronic music world, it always it it as a woman in the '80s going to grad school, I was one of several women in the department. You know, and every time I went to a conference, it was like a hundred guys and me, and you know, yeah. and it, it that has changed so much over the years that I barely think about it anymore. Well, so now um, there's three women instead of one. 
Well, well, I mean, my perception, you know, I, I, I help book the um, San Francisco Electronic Music Festival, yeah. and there's so many fabulous women to choose from. We're not even bending over backwards to try to include women. We're just like picking the people who are good, and many of them are women, and many of them are people of color. Yeah. And I love being able to do that. Just like, look at all this talent that we have from all coming from all different directions. And Dolan, I went to um, what super booth, maybe what two or three years ago. And really there are not very many women. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, we're in- what super booth? It's a, uh, it's a synthesizer. <laughs> oh, it's like a conference Thank you. or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's true. When you go to a lot of the conferences like NAM, it sure is kind of a, a sausage fest. What's yeah. now? Uh, National Association of mm, uh, <laughs> Mummies? Muslims? Uh, music manufacturers, I think. Um, gear, you know, it's like gearheads. I would love to see more women um, handling controllers and doing more. Yeah. All right. I'm trying. <laughs> But but there are pl- there are countries in in this world where women girls can't even go to school, let alone study an instrument or make music or put their hands on a piece of electronic equipment. You know, I mean, we have so far to go in so many ways, and I'm, I constantly have to remind myself that. Anyway, oh, um, <laughs> I know. So what? So right now, what what's your focus? Oh, the Nutcracker. I'm actually choreographing with little boxes in my head now. So one is in the middle. There's like six people on each stage left and stage right of the Zoom box. Um, it's kind of a strange situation here. Um, so so that's what I'm working on um, artistically is I'm choreographing a Waltz of the Flowers. And um, in terms of uh, my work with Girl Project, we've been we've been doing a lot of cultural activities. So we learned how to make tamales from um, the area of Veracruz with banana leaves and salsa and tortillas. And then we did a six week session on um, doing an altar for Day of the Dead. Um, and then we're moving into um, art classes, charcoal drawing. So we've been doing a lot more art classes online. Oh, that sounds great. What, and who are you working with on those? So I've been working on it with Girl Project Moms and Grandmothers, and then also with a muralist named Sochi Guerrero, who taught the um, altar making session. And then we're working with Tarika Lewis who um, is teaching charcoal drawing and watercolor. And she was one of the original um, women in the Black Panther Party. And now she's a musician and she's a teacher. So what we try to do is we bring in um, mentors who will, who will be around to just basically answer questions to young kiddos and develop relationships. Uh, who are the kiddos? So um, Girl Project has been happening now. We're in our we're closing out our seventh year. And um, there are kids who primarily live in the San Antonio district of Oakland. Um, When we are not in shelter in place, we run our program at Eastside Cultural Center, which is on International and 23rd Avenue. Um, And it is in many ways similar to the Dance for Parkinson's program in that it offers art and empowerment activities. Specifically for girls? Yeah, specifically for girls, specifically for girls of color who live in uh, San Antonio. And so we, we always offer um, self-defense and we offer bike riding, bike safety and then we figure out ways to distribute bikes and lots of food. We try to provide food and dance classes and visual arts. Mm. I've been I've been on and off paying attention to the activities of Girls Incorporated, uh, um, which seems like another great organization doing things like that and sort of empowering young girls. And then I get thinking about the boys, like. Uh, and we're live again. Okay. So let's see how to segue from what we were doing. Um, we must confess to our listener base 
that mistakes were made, there was technological <laughs> failure, and we had to re-record a section of this podcast. Oh, okay. Well, we we had just been talking about the work that Claudine is doing. Welcome back, Claudine. Thanks. Um, been talking about the work that Claudine is doing with girls, especially in the uh, San Antonio neighborhood of Oakland. What is it specifically about that neighborhood? So I came to Eastside Cultural Center first to kind of just do work. So I did a piece in 2012 called Freedom House, and it was a collection of interviews of educators and um, just talking about what some of the issues are for working with urban youth. As uh, as one of the interviewees said, it which is code. <laughs> uh, yes. yeah. yeah. And I got really inspired by working with Eastside, and I started to offer dance workshops there. And it became really evident that the girls that I was serving were not feeling very safe. Mm. So I would ask them, well, what kind of lessons would you like? What 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 is of interest to you? And they would. Um, they said that they really didn't feel safe at home because of home invasion. They didn't feel safe oh, going to from school to home on the streets that they always had to watch their backs. And at that time, we started a little dance workshop and we started working with a community garden across the street to just create safe spaces for girls. And um, one of the things they asked for was self-defense. So we offered self-defense and urban planning and dance classes and art classes. Um, but one question that actually came up during a, a lesson was, we basically said, is there anything you want to know about self-defense? And one question was, well, what do I do if I get thrown in a trunk? So at that point, it was like, let's go outside and look at a trunk, right? And let's, you know, this is how you bang out the the. the, the light and this is how you do this or you look for things and there's in in newer cars there's actually uh it's required to have a button from the inside that you can open up the trunk so these you know this is the the reality of um some environments you know mm -hmm. uh, and so we want to be smart about it and we want to give our um, kids an opportunity to not only deal with survival but to thrive so um, we really uh, work hard to bring mentors of color to the space and as their teachers so that they can over time, you know, we're, we're here um, as mentors and willing to uh, be aunties um, to these kids as they grow. And now we just completed our seventh year. We're moving next year is actually Danaga's 20th anniversary and questions yeah thank you yeah in our eighth year with girl project and the question i was asking i mean i have no doubt that what you're doing is is welcome and necessary and the kids probably love it so thank you for doing that with the girls and as a girl girl empowerment seems incredibly important um it seems like almost the most important thing we can do globally is educate young women but uh, it just got me thinking about the boys because all this attention is now being paid to girls and I don't hear equal attention being paid to boys. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I think uh, actually it's probably still unequal that there's more um, things out there for males, but it's just that it's become normalized that we don't actually really pay attention to it. So when I was growing up, like I wasn't even allowed to go into the back room of my dad's golf club, you know? So there were a lot of kind of men's type, men, men only type of organizations and clubs and religious uh, organizations. And so I think that we're living in a patriarchal society. I guess I'm thinking of the confusion that there must be around what it is to be a boy and what it is to be a man right now. Um, like, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Of course, it's a patriarchal society um, and more so in many other places in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but there's the talk and there's the balance that 
boys have to find now between sort of being macho and being sensitive and trying to figure out their roles in a world where women are kind of claiming their power. And I worry about a lot of boys kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I hear you. I think it's the whole way that we educate young humans, regardless of their gender. As And, you know, uh, the spectrum of emotions, being able to even identify and allow all of our young humans to experience the spectrum of emotions, right? Um, we don't actually teach that in school about mm. how to even manage our own minds. But I, and I agree with you, I think that there needs to be a lot of love and attention to our boys as well. And um, one of the things that I do recommend is watching that documentary called The Mask We Live In. And a lot of our Oakland schools participated in that documentary about what it is to raise boys. So I think that um, we need a holistic approach to raising sensitive humans. Mm. And, and also a balance of masculine and feminine um, ideologies. And I think it, it would serve us all well. I My mind went sort of backwards just in thinking about the fundamental problems of the educational system in this country. It made me wonder, can they, is teaching emotional skills the right, is school the right place for that? Um, you know, this is something that the Dalai Lama has been talking a lot about, is not just in this country, but just learning about our emotions. He actually has a really interesting website about um, emotional intelligence that he's touting and thinks that all education systems should include this. Yeah, I'm not sure Claudine is saying this is something that ought to be taught in schools. She's just saying if it's not being taught somewhere else, there are aspects of schooling and organizations that can help out, like Claudine's organization. Yeah, and hopefully families do this. Yeah. And well, I mean, then, yeah, yeah it seems like what you need to be doing is working with those families in addition to working with the girls themselves. Yes. In an ideal world, we would have wraparound services for our youth, for sure. Yeah. I certainly see the appeal. I mean, I know with all sorts of youth rehabilitation, like chemical dependency, it's seen as fundamental that not only the, the kids are involved, but also their parents are brought in. So that made me start thinking about what, you're, what you do, Claudine, and wonder, now, is there a way to bring in parents? Oh, my goodness. There are so many great programs out there that are doing it successfully. That's great. Yeah. There, there are a lot of organizations um, in the Bay Area. I know of one in Richmond who that is that is providing care for the family um, as well. And you know, I I know that there are some attempts with schools to also offer you know like clinics in the space. Like again, the whole notion of of wrapping around services to young people so that people's you know that. Maslow's hierarchy of needs are are met by the community. That whole notion of it takes a village. I mean, we're so so many of us are such independent thinkers and doing things my way. And it's kind of like an interesting thing to think about how we can work together. I think that's important given uh, how much of our social ills have been attributed to the the fact that we're all bowling alone in the famous words of Robert Putnam, that we're there's far fewer community engagement of many different kinds. I mean, that's a good overall uh, effort to make, is, is just getting out of our own little looking out for ourselves ideologies and trying to make everything everything we do have some sort of community meaningfulness. So... Again, great you're doing that, Claudine. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's awesome. So, um, well, if people want to look and see what you are up to, they can go to your website, which is dinaga, D-N-A-G-A dot org. And if they click on the first video link there, they will find a project called Mom and Me. And I got to watch the premiere of this just at the beginning of 
COVID time, and I was really moved by it. it it's sort of a dance theater, poetry, I don't know, how would you describe it? It just expresses some really interesting relationships between mothers and daughters um, and goes into all kinds of cultural differences. And, you know, it's hard not to think about your relationship with your own mother when you watch it. And so brought tears to my eyes. So can you tell us about that project? Yeah. So uh, Mom and Me actually started... Um, when after a dance for PD class, one of the moms asked me to choreograph a duet on her and her daughter. And um, that was before COVID time. So we actually went into the studio and I worked on three separate duets. And um, having lost my own dad not too long ago, I have really evolved you know, my relationship with my mother. And so I think that the artwork helped me to dissect my own relationship with my mom and to kind of look and see what are other people's relationships to their mother. Um, in particular, those with uh, Parkinson's disease, those relationships were interesting because I was hearing from the moms that they were resisting giving up their you know, autonomy and feeling bad for um, being a burden. You know, I specifically heard uh, mom say, I'm the mom, I'm supposed to be the one taking care of them. And now they have to take care of me. And just that whole transformation of the role of, yeah, which happens to all moms, yeah. whether or not they have Parkinson's. That's right. So that was an interesting um, exercise for me. Unfortunately, because of COVID, the challenge of being together um, and then the challenges of technology and trying to create a performance on Zoom was just a little bit too challenging. So for the, for the dancers with Parkinson's, we're going to wait a little bit and hopefully be able to perform those in the future, um, hopefully at the World Parkinson's Congress in Barcelona. But what ended up happening was then I just continued to delve into Asian American moms. So I was working in partnership with Bonte Saray, a Southeast Asian group of sisters who meet together in Oakland, Chinatown. And I interviewed them about what it was like to be uh, a child of an immigrant mom and um, the challenges of being in America and kind of having different cultural expectations. And then there's also kind of how to raise kids in this era. And one of the interviews was with Shauna Ray talking about um, her relationship with her own mom and then what it's like to raise African-American girls and just kind of that whole notion of meeting each situation differently based on safety and, and you know, expectations. So Mom and Me has a little, we have one little excerpt video called Navigate, and that is, um, that celebrates Black moms. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, trying to remember what else we talked about talked a little bit about like dealing with things head on sort of the mom the mom archetype of I think you you wanted to talk a little bit about the whole notion of tiger mom oh yeah, yeah. I just I was I was really kind of touched that these some of these some stereotypes do tend to come from somewhere but of course we always overdo it and that's what stereotypes are um oh. and, and so I just was impressed that many of the girls had relation, you know, the Asian American girls had relationships with their moms that seemed almost typically Asian, like they, they described their moms as not being very physically affectionate or being tiger moms. And it was just so refreshing to hear them talk straightforwardly about that without kind of worrying that they were falling into some kind of stereotype, you know? And I just, I found it fascinating because it gave us a real look into what other cultures are like, a real honest look. And I just wondered if you guys had talked about that at all when you put the thing together 
No, we didn't talk about it because I, well, it's interesting, right? Because stereotype is really a very oversimplified notion of an idea. So tiger, the whole notion of the tiger mom usually to me is more of a situation where there's usually an, uh, more money in the family mm. and uh, they have the uh they have the luxury of having their child compete and try to make something of themselves in, in or, or the, there's, there's some sort of investment in if your child succeeds, then that means that you succeed. I think for mom and me, we really just talked about kind of the cultural lack of warm fuzzies, mm. not a lot of like, I love you. And it's really interesting because, you know, in some Asian countries, boys are are more favorable. And and then also the way that each child is um, referred to in a family is often number one, number two, number three. (laughs) 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 Number one son, number one daughter, Um, you know, all of that. Uh, So, yeah, it it has an impact on our emotional well-being. Yeah, your sense of yourself must be kind of bizarre to know that you're number three. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, and then, and yet, it's again, it's just like kind of normalized, right? So, unless we look at these stories and talk about them and unpack them, um, we really kind of. We're, we're just it's like the matrix you know it's like this is how it is so I like to to do interviews to break stereotypes so that we can really look at things in a more holistic way and that's just one glimpse right tiger mom is like one archetype because there are some lots of folks who are neglected there is no tiger mom there you know mm-hmm. there's there's an absent mother completely so um, I, I, yeah. suspect, I think what you one thing you said rings really true to me there's a big class element in this where you know you have to be probably most tiger moms are upper middle class yeah kind of true in in other cultures as well yeah exactly so if you're if you come from a family of lawyers then you probably are you know you're gonna be a lawyer and doctor <laughs> So expectations. So when when you went into the arts, did that sit well with your family or? I no, not really because and back then I think that the the most um, famous Asian Americans were all journalists. They were all doing the web, right? Wendy Takuda. So, uh, what kind of job could an Asian American really do? Right. What is normal? I think things have really times have changed, but times have not changed. I mean, because a lot of a lot of the girl project participants, you know, I think that the parents would, you know, they they basically want to better their lives. So if if uh, the family lives in poverty, then hopefully that child will get a good education and get them out of poverty. The tough life, immigrate, you know, we're in a very, very strange time. So. Well, there is some good news here. Americans view, in 2020, view immigration more positively than they have for decades. You know, huh. it's, yeah, they've reacted a lot to the orange man. Yeah, I, you know, it just the children in cages just breaks my heart. Oh, gosh, yeah. And there's a lot of assault that's happening in those um, relocation centers, they're calling. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fucking terrible. I think that, um, you know, many of us are overwhelmed with the amount of, there's so much trauma. It's kind of like, where do we put our attention? But again, kind of going back to that emotional intelligence is, I think maybe it's not just for kiddos, you know, it's like we all kind of have to um, level up. Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, on this day before the election. Yes, Dia de los Muertos. Oh, and that too. Yes. And we'll see 
if the world changes momentously tomorrow. Yes. Actually, you know, it's not going to change momentously either way. But it'll go in some positive yeah. direction or some negative direction. I, yeah. yeah, that it will. No, <laughs> standing, no standing still. Yeah. <laughs> we have to practice surfing so that we maintain equilibrium as much as yes. we can as we ride out these waves yes. in your future. Are you a surfer? No, I wish I was. I've tried. It's pretty hard. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank well, you Claudine, so thank you. Um, all the best in everything you're working on. And uh, we appreciate the great conversation. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Professor and the Idiot. If you like what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a good rating. Your positive feedback completes us.